Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it. Brought to you by Brightsmith. We're your hosts. I'm Jenny Gladman. And I'm Ben Sparks. And in this fifth season, we're interviewing leaders, forward thinkers and entrepreneurs from around the world to talk all things clean tech and clean tech careers. From the opportunities and challenges of working in clean tech to tips to get into the industry and why it's so rewarding to work in. We'll be hearing from a series of individuals, all with very different backgrounds, to discover how they forged their clean tech career and are fueling a cleaner, greener future. In addition, they'll be offering you some tokens of wisdom to enlighten, engage and inspire everyone to live their purpose every single day. So in this series, we are talking about careers and careers that are part of the world driving the energy transition. And today I have not one, but two brilliant guests with me. They both had very different careers, but they've ended up in the same place. Um, So they both work for B Zero Carbon. It's a global rating agency for the voluntary carbon market and their ratings allow market participants to price and manage risk. Um, So I had my intro planned and then one of the lovely ladies this morning let me know she'd moved jobs, but it's actually very fitting for this career. So first up is Louisa O'Connell. She was the head of Net Zero Research uh, until last week, but she is now working as a sales specialist alongside our other guest, Serene Hanaf, who is the head of partnerships. A little bit more background on them. So Serene has a brilliantly multicultural background. She's got experience from all over the globe, and this has enabled her to see business in a truly global way. It's a huge asset to her role as the head of partnerships, connecting with and building relationships with project developers across the globe. Uh, Louisa, who my uh, script here still says the head of research, but no longer the head of research, has had also um, a really interesting career. Before uh, B0, she was at EcoAct Consulting, a multinational company on carbon accounting and climate risk and strategy. She's worked with companies such as ITV and Reckitt to set ambitious science-based targets and also net zero targets. So very different, but uh, now fighting the same battle. So ladies, welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, uh, and over to you to, to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourselves. Well, great. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, thanks for, for having us. I'm very excited to be able to chat with you today and, you know, have the opportunity to share about our professional experience and, you know, how it led us to, to what we're doing today. So, as you mentioned, I'm the head of partnership uh, for, for B0, which is a pioneer in the like, rating space for the, for the VCM. Uh, but as you can imagine, like my personal journey to get to do what I'm doing today was um, was not sh- straightforward. Like 10 years ago when I graduated from university, uh, this type of, of businesses didn't really exist. So, so yeah, so I hope that this podcast will inspire people and, you know, show that the first job or career you decide to take on doesn't necessarily uh, have to define the, the rest of it. So, yeah. Great. Thanks, Serene. And Louisa? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. As, as Serene said, it's great to be here today. Um, I guess in contrast to Serene, uh, I've come from a slightly more linear background in terms of the the work that I've been doing since I finished uni. And yeah, pretty much straight away jumped into a career in sustainability. But even in that time, I've seen huge changes in the industry. And yeah, again, there was no job like a job at B0 when I joined um, or when I started my career. So yeah, it's been a very, very interesting journey. Amazing. Thanks, ladies. And I think before we go into um, more on careers, something that I'd really like to touch on is more around the carbon market itself. And I think not only do a lot of people not understand it, it's also quite a controversial topic in that some people have a lot more belief in its ability to, to have an impact than others. So um, I'm going to go to Louisa on this first one. But just for those of our listeners that are not as familiar with the carbon markets, can you give the, the 101 the, the what does it look like? Yeah, sure. So, well, what we do at B0 is focus mainly on the voluntary carbon market. There are two two carbon markets, really, the compliance market. That's the one which is more focused on um, high-emitting, high-intensity industries. And they uh, that there are schemes, for example, the emissions trading scheme in the EU, which is for those high-intensity companies to essentially sort of pay, pay for the emissions um, that above and beyond their thresholds that they emit. What we're looking at is the voluntary carbon market. And the voluntary carbon market is, in well, in the simplest way, it is a voluntary scheme for companies who are emitting to offset their emissions. What, I guess, that has the, the connotations that companies are just buying these carbon credits to do whatever they're doing now. However, as time has developed and as schemes have really changed over the last few years, a voluntary carbon market and carbon credits are more and more often used as part of a company's net zero pathway and net zero strategy. So it's not the case that companies are just emitting the same amount of carbon year on year on year and then offsetting the same amount year on year on year. But that this is now incorporated into a really robust decarbonization pathway coupled with the purchase of carbon credits to compensate for their emissions as they reach net zero. I'll leave it to Serene to talk about the sort of upstream part of the the, um, the, the VCM and the, the um, projects themselves. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, yeah, following up on, on the 101 segment of, you know, what is a carbon credit? Uh, and obviously, I mean, Bizero Carbon is a rating agency for carbon credits. So first we need to understand what is a carbon credit. And that represents a ton of CO2 that has been removed from the atmosphere or has been avoided to be emitted. Right. And those can be generated by by project, uh, by either avoidance project or removal project. So avoidance project would be projects such as uh, renewable energy projects, which essentially replace the use of carbon intensive source of energy, such as oil or coal uh, by cleaner energy sources or uh, avoidance project would be uh, avoided deforestation projects, for example. So that can either be from unplanned or planned deforestation. So for example, uh, if a landowner uh, had planned to deforest their land 
to for timber productions, for example, uh, they can be incentivized to cancel those plans and protect the lands if they were to receive an alternative revenue. And in that case, that alternative re- revenue would have been generated from the sale of the carbon credits. So like most of the projects that are seeking to generate those revenue, like revenues from those um, conservation activities, for example, have to go through uh, an accreditation process, uh, which, which makes sure that uh, a minimum level of quality is being um, adhered to, bearing in mind that every standard might have a different entry level bar in terms of data disclosure needed for the for by the project but also like the test required to assess a project additionality so for example whether the project actually needs carbon financing in order to operate or like they might have different bars to assess the baseline accuracy so how was the business as usual emission scenario modeled for example and so like those certification models led like the market to look at all projects from a binary lens where accredited projects were assumed to deliver the same outcome, regardless of like the multiple ways a project could actually implement a, a methodology on the ground. So, you know, what we offer at B0 is our opinion on the likelihood that the credits uh, generated by a project actually does deliver a ton of CO2. And this is done through um, our uh, rating framework, which assesses like multiple risk factors. So we look at additionality, as I mentioned, but we also look at overcrediting, leakage, non-permanence, policy risk, etc. So that's our 101 section on the, on the carbon credits. Thank you. I think it's one of those things, it, it is complex, but the more that it becomes mainstream, I think the more people's understanding will grow. And I guess the other question that a lot of people have is to what extent does the carbon market play a part in mitigating climate change? And I think on this podcast, generally, we have this discussion around lots of different areas. And I think all of our guests, hopefully, are are kind of bright enough to realise there is there's no one solution. So it's about lots of different solutions working in parallel. But how do you see the carbon market and the changes in that having an impact? It's, sorry. well, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I understand the concerns, right? Because like the, the market has been booming uh, and like serious capital is being invested into those climate solutions uh, for, as, as Louisa mentioned, like companies that could not reduce further, like have to, to, to go to that market. And, and, and so understandably, like this market has to go under more scrutiny. Uh, and like the whole concept of carbon credit is is being questioned, and like that's where like B zero comes in, and we and we hope that like rating agencies will help investors navigate that complex market, provide them like with a uniformed metric to be able to compare project across sectors, across um, you know countries, across standards, but also like provide that infrastructure that is currently lacking. Uh, to be able to look at carbon credit as a as a commodity and enable like risk professionals to actually manage that risk properly, and like like coming from a market risk background, like the, the the dream scenario for me is like would be that for carbon credits to be grouped by grades like the same way like for example oil at the moment they are currently grouped by grades based on the composition of sulfur etc. Understandably, like carbon projects are all very different, but we I, I think that we found 
a good way to be able to classify like project based on on their quality and and that's how we we hope that you know we can bring solution to that market and help scale it and uh, you know, not be um, a victim of, you know, like those headlines that, are, you know, might, uh, you know, bring the market to things that the whole market is flawed, which is, I don't think that's the case, right? I mean, we've, we've rated 286 projects or so, and out of those, like only 14% are actually making, like getting the lowest grade of the scale. So you do have large distribution of quality. So yeah, that's uh, my take on this. Um. And like you say, Jenny, that we're not saying that the voluntary carbon market should be the only tool in the toolbox. And you know, what what I'm seeing with a lot of corporates is that they are incorporating this into a very uh, like detailed transition plan, which is looking first and foremost at their own operations and at their own decarbonization pathway. But if there's another tool out there that can help to accelerate that decarbonization pathway globally, as long as it's done right, why wouldn't you do that? I think the, the conversation is really changing to be much more about doing you know, your own decarbonization coupled with compensation through the voluntary carbon market um, to do do everything that you can do rather than just trying to focus on one area or focus on another and you know for i think historically a lot of a lot of frameworks a lot of guidance has been around let's not use the voluntary carbon market because it's not credible or there's not enough integrity in the market but even frameworks like the SBTI are now increasing their guidance, increasing their understanding and um, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of instruction on how to use the voluntary carbon market credibly. And I think that's really, really going to help to give much more trust in using it and, yeah, having having a sort of a, a, an arsenal of tools um, to get to global decarbonization. And I, and I like one of the words that you picked on there is trust. And I think actually that's probably one of the the main topics that comes up when you think about the carbon market and particularly the corporates. And I think we have an interesting take on it sitting in the middle of all of these companies um, that you start to see changes in perception. Um, and I think something that I've seen even in the last kind of five years is the difference of a lot of corporates doing the tick box exercise and having one individual who's responsible for ESG like sat in a a little desk in the corner sort of trying to do their piece to actually it being embedded in companies and and trying to make sure that the practices are, are spread across every individual rather than it being one department who's you know fighting a losing battle in most cases and potentially buying carbon credits to tick a box so that they can, you know, say to their shareholders or their investors, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing something that's going in the right direction. I think we're now seeing where people are, are starting to have this belief that it is everyone's problem and not one person's problem. And, and we all need to get behind it. And I think that word trust is so pertinent because you know, what you're doing at B0 is actually giving that transparency on a market, which has been pretty impossible for people to get their head around until this point. 
Yeah, I think one of the the fastest I ever saw the the industry move was really when the TCFD framework became much more a part of corporate reporting, and a lot of the climate reporting suddenly moved from a small isolated climate team who probably had very little influence on the the wider company to being moved to the CFO's problem, and suddenly there was a lot more interest and a lot more action being taken. And yeah, as you say, that it started to be everyone's problem and everyone's responsibility to actually do something um, on that. I think it's a, a generational thing to an extent as well, in that, that every year you bring in a fresh you know, um, cohort of interns or graduates or school leavers who have a different outlook on this, it, it really pushes the agenda from the bottom up as well, which I think we don't see with most things in companies. Most companies are a top down strategy, whereas I think when it comes to this, it really is the voices at the bottom are often the loudest. Anyway, that brings us into early careers. And that's kind of where we want to focus today's discussion is, is actually showing that regardless of where you start out, and I think Serene touched in this in her intro, it doesn't matter what your first job is. It's more about kind of the impact you have through your whole career. And we no longer live in a world where people work for one company for their whole life, or very, very few people do in most parts of the world. And now when I was doing my research for the podcast, which I like to do sneaky research on people that are coming on the show, I found a great fact out that Serene's first job was actually at Disney World. And I didn't realize it was a summer job, but I feel like all jobs shape part of who you are and what you become and also why you chose to do it. So Serene, over to you to tell us a bit more about uh, about Disney. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean... So, so yeah, so my my early career, so I, I, I first started, well, I joined the business school and uh, as part of the program, we had to do a three, for the first year, three months internship, the second year, six months internship. So for the three uh, months internship, uh, they were quite uh, open in what we were choosing to do, right? And so I, there was this uh, college program uh, at, uh, at, um, at Disney World, which was ultimately us working at the park, but also getting business classes and having, you know, access to the leadership team at, at Disney World. So it was, it was great, right? I mean, I was, I was sharing uh, a flat with like people from all over the world. Like, uh, you know, my, it was my first work experience ever. So it was just a fun, fun thing to do. But, you know, after the, the second year at, at university, then I had to pick a six month internship. But this one, I decided to do something that was a bit more corporate uh, focus. And I ended up um, uh, working for six months in a green focused uh, marketing agency in, uh, in Australia. And with hindsight, I now found this very interesting because I can now appreciate the shift that uh, you know that happened in in the market because uh, in in companies' mindset because I used to work with clients and I think I mean you did mention that Jenny where uh, 
you know, companies like climate related issues were really seen as like a, a marketing opportunity only, whereas now we are seeing like, you know, carbon costs being included into a company's, a company's balance sheet. Obviously, from what Luisa mentioned earlier, you have those companies that are part of like a regulated sectors and they are, they have to, uh, you know, they have been assigned a cap on how much they can emit. And then anything that is, uh, that, that is emitted in excess, then they either have to buy uh, EUAs into the market or they have to pay a tax on it, right? So that, you know, uh, automatically goes into the balance sheet. But now we are seeing like that, that, that shift where even companies that are not part of the regulated sectors, they're, they're starting to see, you know, climate related issues, not only as a, as a, um, as a marketing opportunity, but they see that as a liability. So uh, that was basically my extent during my my study. That was my extent to uh, of exposure to the to the carbon market. So it was really close to to, to zero. And yeah, and then after uh, after that, I just ended up graduating with a business degree, focused major in real estate investment. So really not destining me to the career in climate tech, but I was a, a fun journey. But. And, and actually, one of the things I always like to ask people who have got a lot of experience of working in different countries is how how that experience shaped you, the exposure to different cultures. And, and your list is vast um, and your kind of exposure to lots of different roles, different countries, different continents. Um, how has that shaped you into the person that you are? Uh, well, I think I, I was very um, lucky in life because uh, I'm originally from Morocco. Um, so, uh, but born in France, studied in between France and the US, worked in, in, in the UK, and obviously I had those internships in Australia, etc. So, uh, first of all, I think like the first thing that I got from there is obviously languages, right? Uh, you know, being able to speak multiple languages is always like a, um, you know, something beneficial because now we are working in a world where Unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish, but a lot of the time when I engage with project developer, a lot of them are based in Latin America. I wish I could speak Spanish, but I, I think that's, that's just, I think, you know, like when, when, when you're engaging with people and they, and they see that you understand their culture, etc., I think just like getting the first you know, touch communication is, is very easy uh, because, you know, you, you should be able, obviously, we are all working and uh, in the climate space, but, um, you know, like that, that, that uh, human touch is something that, you know, might uh, make or break, um, um, you know, like a, 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 even like a professional um, uh, relationship. So that was something for me that was, that was, that was very helpful. I mean, the, when I, when I first, like, my first real job like uh, after university uh, joining coming in london was for a Kuwaiti oil company so having uh, which helped me really build like thick skin you know having to work with uh, with a completely different culture even though i'm from like you know i'm arab but uh, like i think the middle eastern culture is very very difficult uh, to, to deal with and that's something that very early on like built my uh, tough skin and then after going into like uh, trading houses where um, you know you you have to uh, to deal with very difficult uh, type of personalities where people are you know stressed uh, penal driven so um, and, and then after going into then later on you know working at Bizio which is a bit more I think people are 
a, a bit less tougher because like you know that's a new industry we are all learning so i think people are, are a bit uh less um you know like less less difficult because we are all learning right even though you might find or you might end up discussing with people that are market venture it has been in the market for 20 years but in reality uh you know the market of 20 years ago is not the same market that that it is today right so um you could just have been starting uh, engaging in that market a year ago. And I think that you you would probably be uh, as well educated as other people. So, yeah. Amazing. And and to go over to Louisa and a different question, something we were discussing recently over lunch, which B0 have amazing lunches for anyone that's interested in working there. Just a little plug for you. Um, we were talking about Louisa's background in neuroscience and I'd, I'd don't know, I'd hedge my bets that you're probably one of the few people that were in neuroscience from an academic perspective and are working in the voluntary carbon market. I may be wrong, but um, yeah, over to you. I'd, I'd love for you to tell the same story that you told us about kind of your decision making process and, and where that went. Yeah, um, well... Yeah, I guess we'll have to go and do a poll of how, how many people in the VCM are working in neuroscience and or did neuroscience as a degree. And I wonder, yeah, I don't know if there's anything that I'm using now from from that degree, but yeah, <laughs> maybe there's more than I think there is. So yeah, anyway, I... As, as I said, um, I was doing my undergrad degree at Edinburgh University uh, in neuroscience. And my final year, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. But I've been working with a really, really amazing supervisor on my dissertation and was really inspired by neuroscience and thought that might be a, a good thing to do for my master's. So I applied for a master's um, in uh, at UCL in neuroscience and was all set to go there until over the summer, um, as a lot of stories go, went traveling. And um, yeah, as I was probably lying on a beach in Mexico somewhere, I was just thinking about what I really wanted to do and what my passions were. And I, I realized that it wasn't probably sitting in a lab looking at yeah very very small electrical signals <laughs> and brain samples as amazing as I think that is it's maybe not where yeah where my passions were so I started thinking about what I really cared about and the summer before I had gone to to Honduras to go and do a conservation project in the in the jungle in Honduras which at the time seemed great. Um, it was in one of the most dangerous parts of Honduras, which is, yeah, slightly interesting looking back, but it was just one of the coolest things I've ever done. Um, I really, really loved just talking to people who were so passionate about conservation, really understanding you know, what what it looked like to do that sort of work and really got me thinking about what, what I was interested in, so I actually yeah, went back to UCL and asked if I could transfer my master's program to conservation. And luckily they said yes. Um, so yeah, I moved, moved my master's program to the School of Geography and did, did my master's in that, at which point I started coming across climate consultancies, um, which then led me to my first job, which was at EcoAct. So yeah, could could have been a very very different future for me um, if it hadn't been for that trip to Mexico. 
think a lesson for everyone out there go traveling always definitely traveling if in doubt go traveling um I think it's where loads of people make amazing decisions because it's that moment when actually you can disconnect from everything and it and it often takes a while to do I don't know how you both feel but I think you can go on holiday for a week and you don't I don't think you really switch your brain off whereas if you go away for an extended period of time I think normally about the third week and you think oh I haven't looked at my emails or I haven't you know you all of a sudden you just feel totally disconnected and and it actually gives you the space to think and to maybe feel some of the things that you don't get a chance to feel in day-to-day life yeah Yeah, definitely definitely. and I think it's something that uh, probably like uh, HR departments have noticed right because like um in in all of my previous jobs like we had like a week uh like we we had at least one week that we needed to take in like consecutively rather than just take one day here and there. So um, because a lot of people were just ending up like taking long weekends, but that's not enough, right? You need like more than three days to disconnect, as you mentioned, at least a week. So yeah, and I also think it's um, something where people are considering sabbaticals as well. And it's something that always seemed a bit crazy to me when companies wouldn't do it because it's often actually the reason that people end up leaving is because they need a break. And if you won't give somebody a break, they will just take an opportunity to move jobs to get that break. And yeah, I'm not saying that that people should be doing it necessarily in their first year, but if you've worked for an organization for five years um, and you want to stay, but you actually do need a bit of breathing space first, I think it's a great, it's a really great thing to do. Yeah, I took a seven month sabbatical from um, my last job and it was, yeah, definitely the best thing I've ever done. I was almost ready to quit and go and do something else. And when I was offered the opportunity for the sabbatical, went away for seven months, came back and I was there for, I think it was about four or five years afterwards. So (laughs) it clearly had a yeah good, good impact in the end. Yeah, I I did a similar thing. And I think it does, it gives you that kind of just a chance to refresh the brain anyway we've gone totally off topic as often happens on the podcast um so one of the things actually I wanted to ask you Louisa as well was we talked as well about the the year that you started your career in 2015 and lots of interesting things that were happening and and perhaps it was one of those where fate makes lots of things collide but how did that impact your career and then how has that kind of brought you through to where you are today yeah, so it's well a bit of a cheesy story, but I guess I started my career at the time when climate change was really being put on the agenda. So 2015 was the year the Paris Agreement um, happened and COP21 happened. So I started work. I think it was the beginning of that year. By the end of the year, the entire sort of climate industry had changed pretty significantly. In that year, science-based targets had gone from not existing at all to being talked about, people asking, you know, how do we do them? What are we going to do to set them? And so I very quickly started thinking, okay, what, what what's EcoAct going to do to start setting science-based targets and how can we do that for our clients? And yeah, I started setting science-based targets very, very early on. Probably at the time, you know, we were just trial and error, trying to figure out how to do them. The the process is definitely a lot easier now than it was back then, but it was a huge learning experience for me. And yeah, we were lucky that we had a few clients who were trying to do this at this very, very early stage and who'd let us 
trial and error a bit on them, use them as guinea pigs um, for something which, yeah, eventually has become just an integral part of all companies' strategies now. So, yeah, very, very interesting start to my career. And I think that, yeah, just the change that I've seen over that time from 2015 to where we are now is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of change, I think it's um, pertinent to talk about startup life. Um, and it isn't for everyone, um, but it's always an interesting topic because, um, as we said with today, you know, in the very short space of time since I wrote out my mind map of what we would talk about today and actually recording it, your job has changed, Louisa. And I think this this happens so often. And we sat in your office talking about how small the company was and how actually almost everybody has a different job title because there's so many things to do. It's, it's kind of impossible to define. So I guess Serena would be interested in your take first, actually, because you've had a lot of big corporate background and now come into a startup. Like, how did that feel, that transition? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, to, to provide some, I guess, some background, it's true that I've I worked in a lot of big corporation. I started my career um, in an aviation company based in Seattle, and then like quickly after that, moved into the energy space where I started with the Kuwaiti oil company. And then uh, from there, I joined one of the major French integrated energy companies, so Total, then then Trailstone, and then BP. And, and yeah, I mean, those are huge corporations, but I think... For someone who's starting their career, for me that was like the perfect like that was the perfect way to start my career because I was able to really learn um, from a company that already had their processes in place, already had their things figured out. The market was mature, um, so yeah, like the like the four the the four first year the the first four years of my career, I was like focused on the um, European uh, gas and power market, which is. Uh, which was a mature market, but also I did have some exposure to the compliance market because we were working with power plants, which are part of those regulated uh, entities part on the European uh, emission trading scheme. So that was a great, like that's how like I started, you know, getting into the carbon market. And then I had the opportunity to join BP covering their low carbon trading desk, uh, still in a risk management capacity. But in that one, I had the opportunity to start covering not only regulated products, but also unregulated products. So like the carbon credits that are part of the, of, of the voluntary carbon market. And while I was, while I entered BP, I thought it was a, that, that prepared me quite well for like the jump to, to be zero carbon because the, the the carbon team at BP at the time, like four years ago when I joined them, was very small. So actually, when I when I decided to to leave the company and, and join B zero, like one of my ex colleague uh, jokingly asked me, was like, "But why why are you why are you uh, leaving BP for a for a startup? Like you know you 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 are you are kind of working in a startup within BP." But you do have the financial stability of, of a big corporation, uh, but still working in a very small team. And, and, and also the fact that, you know, like operating in the VCM, which is like not a mature market, uh, it was kind of the Wild West as well, right? Anyone working, whether you work uh, for Shell, BP or Bizio Carbon, we are all working in that very new market. So you still had... You know, my 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 job as a market risk specialist was was very abstract, right? We didn't have 
like historical data to look at. We didn't have like there was no uh, price discovery. So um, it, it was it was very. So when when I came across B zero, uh, the, the 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 rating framework uh, existed, but was not like B zero carbon was not a rating agency of officially a rating agency yet, right? But I could see the potential that you know like this. Uh, the solution uh, that this rating framework could unlock for like for the for the whole market. So I was like, mm, okay, well, that's interesting. Why not? And then when I started to to, to speak to to the two co-founders, I think uh, they really just sold me the the, the idea, and, and I decided to to jump the, the ship. I think it was like it was challenging, obviously, because um, you know before I used to know exactly what I would be going back to in the in the morning in my previous jobs you know we had like processes in place etc but here that's definitely not the case as you mentioned like I mean I think even like before I joined Bizero, I had like maybe two or three different titles be, before we landed to that head of partnership title and 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 one of the things that I probably you know I, I need to understand that you know I might be giving myself a target for the year, but that's, that's going to be a moving target. It's never going to keep, stay the same. So, so, so yeah, I, I think the, the transition, I thought that I was prepared because of me being part of a very small team at BP, but I was not prepared. Uh, but, uh, but that's the joy of, of being part of that market. So, no, I, I enjoyed it. Good. Uh, and Louisa, what about you? How do you find that startup life and the constant change yeah um well as as you've mentioned yeah i've had i think it's maybe three or four job titles since starting at b0 and i really enjoy the fact that there's a lot changing i think it really reflects what's happening in the market the the voluntary carbon market is moving so fast it's really really growing and i feel that b0 carbon is learning and growing with that i've I also think that compared with my previous job where everyone really had similar backgrounds, similar ways of thinking about sustainability, carbon and climate, at B0, everyone is from hugely different backgrounds. We've got Serene, who's got a massively different background to me, but potentially probably more similar than some of the other uh, our other colleagues who worked in finance for their entire lives and now working at B0. There's also the, the scientists in the ratings team who have all come from very academic backgrounds looking at, um, you know, soil carbon, for example, or something like that. So I think what's, yeah, what's really exciting is that ability to move very quickly and that ability to really bring so many different experts together to create something that's completely new for this market and for this industry. I think it's always nice when you've worked in a corporate to realize that you can bring a discussion to the table and make a decision on the same day. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It feels a bit revolutionary <laughs> and all of a sudden you take it for granted. But at the start, you're like, well, we don't actually have to go through a chain of command. We just get the five people we need in a room. Make mm, the I think... My experience working in consultancy as well, just the, the the companies that I was working with were incredibly slow moving, but even they have learned that they really need to be moving much, much, much faster on this and being much more reactive. So in a way, I think the corporates are kind of echoing the, the startups now, especially in this area. Um, 
And sort of going from that and talking about um, challenges, so I'd be interested to hear your view on looking forward, what the main challenges that you think the voluntary carbon market is going to face, you know, what could be the stumbling blocks? Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I think that, you know, despite despite the fact that there was an impressive amount lately of criticism made against carbon projects and their validity, you know, as Louisa mentioned, like those climate solutions are still required, right, to enable us to, to, to reach our global net zero target. So I, I do believe that, you know, like rating agency will just be critical in that journey to, to keep money flowing into that market. And even more, if we want to bring institutional money into that market, which currently is not happening, right? We have small investors are investing, but, you know, the, the big the big financial institution might not be the ones like still like putting big money into the table. Uh, but in the, in the next couple of years, I think our focus will like certainly just be to continue like building our reputation, make sure that we become the partner of choice for like everyone in, in the VCM supply chain so that, you know, that they, they, they manage to perform due diligence on project. But beyond that, you know, like build like other set of tools that can help, um, you know, help people uh, like designing project. And like we already like started some initiative where like we launched a public consultation on a carbon accounting template, uh, you know, in an effort to standardize the way projects are reporting their carbon accounting data, and we'll be bringing more initiative in, into the market so to, to to help that market not die, but you know, keep on uh, you know building into the momentum. You know, like the past two years uh, was was huge for the voluntary carbon market. Like we reached like highs in terms of transactions, and like you know, people are forecasting the market to reach a valuation of. 200 billion uh to billion dollars by 2030 which is actually what 7 years from now so <laughs> i know like it sounds it sounds like a crazy number but i think uh, you know if if people are forecasting that it's just that you know we don't have other ways to to get to that net zero you know um quickly so besides if 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 you were to cut the solution so yeah, so I think I, I see I see the a bright future for for that market. Uh, we just need to uh, keep building on our momentum. Yeah, echoing what Serene said, the challenge definitely isn't isn't over yet. I think there is a huge hurdle to overcome to really get companies in particular to start thinking about the voluntary carbon market as you know one of the tools that they can use uh, and that is really really going to come from improving the integrity and the trust in the market what you know what what we're here for is really building that infrastructure and really helping to involve people in the decision making process i think for for a really long time companies have either said nope, we're not going to buy any carbon credits at all. Or yeah, we'll buy carbon credits and we'll do kind of basic due diligence on those credits. Now companies are actually really getting involved in the process and are starting to think, you know, what do I really need to know to buy a good quality carbon credit? And you know, what, what decisions do I need to make? So the, the B0 Carbon 
platform is you know so much more than just that letter rating on the platform we've got all of the information about the projects which you know may be too too in depth for some people but if they want to find that information it's all there um there's an amazing team here of earth observation scientists who are you know busy putting together these incredible maps of all of the projects, the boundaries, looking at the fire and drought risk of those projects, which, you know, is is maybe, again, something that doesn't need to be sort of looked at in that much detail. But if you want to look at it and looking at the sort of the headlines of that information is going to be what companies can go to to make those really informed decisions and i think there's going to be a real shift in looking at buying credits more strategically so using credits as a price on carbon so that companies are actually driving decarbonization from in their own value chain through the purchase of carbon credits i think that you'll start to see more carbon carbon credits being purchased within the industries that are hard to abate. So, you know, buying credits within the the transportation industry for a company who has a lot of emissions in logistics, for example. And, you know, also looking to the future to looking for carbon removal credits and really trying to help to build the capacity within carbon removal technologies now so that the, the supply is there for later when the, when the demand needs to be met. Yeah. Wow. Luisa, on, on what you said about uh, you know buyers being becoming more sophisticated, etc. And I think that's something that even like developers they are starting to understand. Uh, because like I'm hearing about actors in the market actually now thinking of building teams that would have for sole focus to engage with rating agencies and like in uh, in uh, institutional uh, investors to you know ensure that the, the data they need to perform the due diligence are made uh, public, uh, which would be great. Like it's basically similar to like an investor relationship department but like within project developer so, so so that's great that you know like buyers are becoming more sophisticated and that's pushing the supply side so developer to really act to be able to you know reach the now the new level like the new thresholds are being set so that's amazing and i think that it, it kind of comes full circle to that discussion we had on the transparency and trust and um, and I think that the greater the transparency, even if you don't choose to read the whole report, sometimes knowing it's there just gives that extra bit of trust because you can if you choose to. And I think that's something that we'll see is required to actually get trust in the market and, and to get more of a, um, I guess, a, a view globally rather than it being small pockets of the world who are doing this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this brings us to, to the final question and something we always do at the end is advice. And it can be advice to your younger self, but, but perhaps in this case, advice to people who want to enter the carbon market from a career perspective would be would be nice because, you know, we've talked about all of these things that need to be done. They're pretty complex that, you know, there is not enough people working in the space right now for us to achieve what we need to achieve. So what advice would would you give? Um, and it can be specific to to groups of individuals that you feel that are really required or it could be generalist. So over to you. 
Yeah, so I mean, I would say probably my advice would be to not get intimidated. Again, as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, you might find market veterans that have been operating in that market for the past 20 years, uh, but, but really the market, you know, that existed 20 years ago is not the same. So I think that most of the stakeholders currently that are operating in that market are quite new and new rules are being set up. So, you know, like the mat- as the mar- until the market matures, like everyone has a chance to have like a strong footprint and help shape the market. And I guess just jump in the wagon now while, you know, you're gonna, you can have like a, a big impact. So as I said, not get intimidated. As Riza mentioned, like a lot of people that are now working in, in that space are coming from like traditional financial backgrounds. And, uh, you know, you probably have like more like crazy career shifts that happened. So, yeah. Yeah, I always joke that, um, yeah, people always jumping on the bandwagon that I was on for <laughs> years and years before. But it's, you know, I... I think that it's amazing that this industry is really taking off in such a huge way. And I'm always really excited to hear about people who do want to come and yeah learn more about climate or want to work in climate, anything like that. Yeah, I, I constantly get requests from, you know, friends, younger cousins who want to start working in climate and want to have a chat. And I really love having those chats with people because it's so interesting to you know, hear why people want to work in this area or what their past experience is and what they can be doing. Um, so yeah, I think advice number one would be just always reach out to people if you hear about anything interesting. There are probably so many jobs that you didn't even know existed. So there's yeah plenty of things to look at and plenty of places that you can get involved in even if you don't think that your experience is relevant and then I think another piece of advice would be to not think that anything's going to stay still for any amount of time this yeah is a hugely quickly moving industry and yeah I think just try and stay as informed as you can but don't worry if things pass you by because there's probably something else coming up so yeah it's it's really exciting to be in part of this Fantastic. Well, I think you've both both sold the dream of working in the carbon space. Um, So thank you very much. Um, It's certainly, from my perspective, you're you're in an amazing space and what B Zero Carbon are doing is so needed to get other other parts of the, um, the sector working together. So thank you for your hard work. Thanks for telling your stories today. Um, and for joining us. Um, And I'm excited to see how many jobs that you both have within the same company uh, in the next (laughs) year and and catch up on what's happening. So thanks for joining, ladies. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jenny, for having us. Very nice to have this chat. Really enjoyed it.